All right, well, uh, uh, first of all, ladies and gentlemen, before I begin, uh, I would like to make a brief announcement. Um, the, there is a plan developing. I'm going to tell you what I know about it. Uh, you are encouraged to participate in it. And if you don't like the plan, then by participating in it, you can help improve the plan, right? You can do something about it instead of just complaining and whining and moaning. Uh, anyways, uh, the plan, the brainstorm, men's breakfast, right? So we know it's going to be popular because first of all, it's food and second of all, it's breakfast, right? <laughs> most important and most delicious meal of the day, all right? The plan is, uh, the, the initial plan, and this can, right, this is just the brainstorm right now, is last Sunday of even months, right? So if you're misanthropic like I am, you don't like to spend time with people, right? We're only talking about six times an entire year, right? So, you know, don't forsake the gathering together of believers and, you know, don't miss breakfast. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Right? Where, where have you been my whole life? <sighs> Married to another man. Heavens. What's that? First or I don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. But uh, it will, right, it, so the point of contact for uh, men's breakfast is Mr. James Hansen. Mr. Hansen, will you please raise your hand to be identified? All right. I know how Mr. Hansen cooks, so it will probably be substantial enough to count for both first and second breakfast, <laughs> and probably 11 Z's, right, yeah, and luncheon after it, it'll probably, we'll probably pack everything in there, right? So, uh, Questions for this can be directed to Mr. Hansen. James, as, as his friends call him. Any questions on, on uh, this matter? Well, any questions, direct them to uh, James. So, good morning. Welcome, everyone. Best wishes that, uh, that uh, you're doing well. Mm. Yes, shalom, shalom. So, uh, welcome to... Uh, Remnant of Israel. First of all, I've got to tell you a story, right? I, uh, I have some, uh, I work in the manufacturing department of uh, CNH, uh, Case New Holland Industries, right? Uh, if you've ever, uh, if you've driven around somewhere and you've seen a skid steer or a skid steer with tracks on it instead of wheels, we call it a compact track loader. If you've seen one with the Case or New Holland brand over about the last 10 years, that came out of my facility, right? Um, so uh, I'm in the manufacturing department, which means I have, I and my colleagues determine the process of building these things, right? And my colleagues are an interesting bunch. You have to hear a story about one of them because uh, you'll, you'll see, it'll help explain a little bit of why I am the way I am. So uh, one of my colleagues, he said, uh, I don't know, he was having a meeting about, you know, the color of the sky, whatever, I don't know. He says, you know, hey, Joe, hey, Joe, do you, want to be, do you want to be part of this meeting? I said, no, I don't. I didn't know what the meeting was about, but no, I don't want to be part of your stupid meeting. All right, that was an easy question. He said, well, why not? It's important. It, it kind of involves you tangentially. No, I don't want to be part of the meeting. But the meeting's important. And then I said, all right, you know, and, and uh, the engineer's name is Robert. And Robert's, uh, like all engineers, he's an acquired taste and has his quirks. Right, and I said, so Robert, Robert, there's, 
at, at the end of the age, there will come a meeting in which Jesus of Nazareth will gather his redeemed. And he will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the rest that my father has prepared for you. Now, I want to be part of that meeting. I don't want to be part of any other meetings. All right. So if you're not Jesus of Nazareth and you're not inviting me to uh, the resurrection of the just, don't invite me to your stupid meeting. Anyways, so uh, there, there you go. I hope that, uh, right, that's uh, uh, the gospel according to engineers, uh, chapter and verse. So um, welcome to, uh, right, welcome to Principia Theologia, lecture one. Yeah, sounds cool, doesn't it, right? Uh, this is the new members class, right? But, um, you know, so, so first of all, Right, uh, Sir Isaac Newton's book that, that, you know, told everyone what calculus was, that defined calculus, was called uh, Principia Mathematica. And uh, when I was uh, a math teacher, my, my calculus students uh, would say of me that I had a man crush on Sir Isaac Newton. And that's probably true, right? So, uh, so instead of calling this new members class, which sounds boring, right? We're going to call it Principia Theologia, because anything said in Latin is way cooler, right? And coolness matters to, uh, to my vanity. And, um, and also, right, yes, this is a new members class, but it's also a class on the basics, right? It's a class on the, the basics of, of in, in part, we'll teach the basics of what we do in this peculiar little group called Messianic Judaism, but it will also, it, it's also intended to be the, uh, the basics of what we would call mere Christianity, right? Um, you know, the, the basics of the, uh, the, the foundational Christian faith, right? The faith that is um, uh, fundamental to all of those who would be part of the, of the universal Catholic Church. Okay, so that's, that's what um, this series is designed to be. Uh, it was originally supposed to be uh, six, you know, six um, Saturdays, six sermons long. Uh, that's been changed to five, not necessarily for any good reason, but because of time constraints, right? But... Uh, Right, consider yourselves lucky that it's only five. Um, right, Dr. Dr. William Lane Craig teaches a class that, that he considers to be the basics. He teaches it over a period of four years. Right, so yeah, yeah, it could happen to you. All right, so uh, be glad that it's not happening to you. Or, or maybe you'd like to do something like that. Maybe we'll do a really deep dive sometime. But this won't be that deep a dive. All right, anyways, so uh, today... Right, um, and and in these classes, uh, it you know it's not just a class, right? It's not just going to be me standing up here, you know, blah 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 blah, right? It should also be, you know, you. It should be the members of this congregation, right? Because as members of this congregation, we are we are um, we're equal in in uh, we're we're equal in standing to each other, right? In the way that we say all men are created equal. Right, that's X chromosome man we're talking about, right? So if, if you have an X chromosome, 
right? If your biology is a little rusty, that means everyone here, right? Then you, then you have an equal standing before the Almighty, blessed be He, right? I'm not doing this as, as an elder trying to, you know, order you around or anything. I'm, I'm trying to do it so that we all have a common grasp of the fundamentals of the faith, all right? So um, during these discussions, and ideally they will be discussions, I will pause from time to time and ask for feedback, ask for questions, ask for discussion on the material that we've presented, right? And you are the, those, those who are interested in membership are strongly encouraged to participate, but everyone is encouraged to participate, right? Because, right, th this is, in this synagogue, we, we do not seek, the, the elders of the synagogue, we do not seek to exercise a lot of authority. We seek to exercise guidance. And, and we, you know, also because we're humans, therefore we're lazy. We don't want to do a whole lot of work, right? We want you to do a lot of the work, right? And that's the quiet part that I just said out loud, right? So uh, there you go. So uh, this is Principia Theologia, uh, the first. So the things I'm going to be talking about today, right? Um, actually, excuse me. So you are welcome to ask questions um, at, uh, at a time appropriate. I'll give you a chance to ask questions as, as we go through this. Fair enough? Please participate. Please uh, take ownership of the things that we're doing here at this synagogue, right? Because we love you guys and we want everyone here to be a team standing together, united, driving forward for the glory of God. Good? Okay, excellent. Now, things I'm going to be talking about today. All right, first of all, we're going to talk about truth and understanding it. Right? At, at the end of today's discussion, you should be able to talk about truth, understand how we know truth. All right? I'm going to be talking about the Bible Right? How, do we, how do we have confidence that the Bible is the Word of God? And, oh, the Word of God. What is God? Who is God? What is His nature? Right? We're going to be uh, talking about God. Right? These are very basic things, but the basics are very important. Right? So I'm going to tell you another story. This one's really interesting. I think it's interesting. I don't know. Maybe you guys think that the weird happenings of C&H are not all that interesting. If, if that's the case, you can give me that feedback too. Uh, so one of the members of our welding department uh, used to be a, um, a, a by, his, by his testimony, he used to be a committed Christian, right? He was uh, going to Liberty University. He was getting his degree. He was going to, he was going to go be a Baptist minister preaching the word, right? Great and wonderful. He is no longer a, um, he's no longer a Baptist. He's no longer uh, in communion with any aspect of, of uh, the church. You'll never guess what his, what his religion is that he chose for himself. So this is where you try to guess. What do you think? What's that? Okay, close. Wrong. What's that? So atheism, atheism is close. He would technically be atheist. Um, he doesn't claim agnosticism, right? Ag 
agnostic. Gnosos is the Greek word for knowledge, right? So if you're agnostic, you don't know. That's not it, but good guess. Not Islam. Keep going. Not Buddhism. He is a Satanist. You didn't want to say it. All right, fair enough. But he is a Satanist, right? So, right, if for those of you who don't know about Satanism, right, the, the, the organized religion of Satanism, it, they, they have kind of an atheist worldview, but it's, it's basically just a bunch of people that get together and say and shake their fists at the Almighty and say there is no God and I hate him and I won't do what he says even though he doesn't exist, right? I, and I think that's a fair description Right, that's similar to the description that I gave my friend Jeremy. Right now, remember, this is a man who was preparing to enter the ministry, the, the Christian ministry. Okay, and his his story, his testimony, if you can call it, it is a testimony of sorts. Right, should be instructive to us. Right, because I asked him, I, I probed a little bit. You know, why? Why'd that happen? That's interesting. And, and he, well, you know, there were just some inconsistencies that I didn't like. Right? Well, what are these inconsistencies? Oh, well, well, Jesus said he'd be in the grave three days, but he wasn't in the grave 72 hours. Right? I mean, I, right, little things like that. And I, I find that amazing. I find that, oh, that's, gonna, that's what's really bothering you. Right? But I, I will say that after asking him just a few questions, I was able to start the process of poking some pretty, you know, poking holes in his worldview that you can drive a Mack truck through those holes, right? Now, despite that, right, this isn't about me or any member of this synagogue winning an argument, right? We should be able to win arguments, right? But we should also be able to protect ourselves, right? We, so that's why we need to know the basics, Right? The basics of our faith. Our faith has a long, deep, rich, and comprehensive intellectual tradition. All right? If there are questions, if there are honest questions that anyone has about our faith, we should be able to answer those questions. All right? And if we're not able to answer some of them, we should be able to find answers, and we should have a strong trust that there are answers. Okay? So that's part of the purpose of this series is to ensure that we are able to answer these questions, at least the very basics of them, because some of the things that my friend was talking about were very, very basic, very basic things that should not, you know, first of all, everyone should know these answers. Everyone should know what they are and be able to explain them to others and that, that these things that he was talking about caused someone to apostatize from the faith is a bright flashing neon sign that we, and by we I mean the, the, the greater community of disciples, are not doing our jobs very well. So I, I seek to correct that at least at Sharit Yisrael Messianic Synagogue. Fair enough, so that's one of the, one of the things we're doing. Again, things we're talking about Truth and understanding it, the Bible, and the existence of God. Any questions or discussion on what we're planning to talk about thus far? 
Okay, seeing no feedback, I'll continue. Uh, references for what I'm going to be talking about today, right? There are a number of good books that, you know, I, I personally think that we are living in a golden age of apologetics, right? We are living in an age where the truth of the Judeo-Christian worldview is going forth. It's strongly going forth. And it has the capability to go forth in even greater strength and power. And I don't know why this is. I think that part of it is the, uh, the technological abilities we have, right? The, the communication, the internet, things of that nature. Um, you know, so not only can, you know, can every one of us have access to, to books, materials, discussions that, that um, only scholars would have been able to access even as little as 40 years ago, right? But... Um, but uh, we, we can also communicate it to very broad audiences. So there's, I'm, I think that might be one of the reasons. I think another potential reason is the movement of the Spirit, right? That for, for whatever his reasons are, he has chosen to move at this time, right? I don't know what those reasons are, and I don't need to, right? When the prophet asks the question, who's known the mind of the Lord, blessed be he, and who has been his counselor, I can guarantee you the answer is not this guy, right? But for whatever reason, you know, the, the, the spirit might be moving. So um, these are the references that uh, not only in today's discussion, but throughout um, uh, Principia Theologia, ah, such a cool name, right? Throughout our discussions that I'll be referencing. Um, first of all, Growing to Maturity by Dan Juster. Um, I will be referencing The Story of Reality by Greg Kokel. Uh, the book On Guard by William Lane Craig, as well as the Defenders series, that, that four-year four class that I was talking about is called Defenders. Uh, Dr. Craig is a uh, fairly well-known philosopher and Christian apologist. Right? I'll be referencing some of his material. Um, the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by uh, Drs. Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. Also, the uh, lecture series, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by Frank Turek. Um, my quotations from scriptures will be from the, uh, from the New King James Version. That's just what I have access to. I think it's a fairly decent translation that is, is uh, faithful to the text and is also... Uh, it. it preserves the, the poetry and prose of the language as well as I think is able to be translated into our language and it, um, it uh, gets rid of most of the archaic language that uh, is not easily understood by people 400 years after the fact. So um, that's the translation I'll be using. And um, also there are, uh, there are others that I probably should reference that, um, that I'm not referencing right now. Right? Again, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Sir Isaac Newton, so I will say that uh, if I have seen further, it is because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Um, any questions on the reference material that we'll be using? Uh, so, uh, so you are all, right, we have, you know, sitting back there in a box, a number of copies of the book Growing to Maturity. Right, it is, again, um, it's written by the man who I believe is the, 
basically the head of the denomination in which this synagogue participates. Uh, it's, not, it's not what I would call an official catechism. It is, it is a, a decent um, estimation. If you want to read it, please come get a copy. Uh, I think Philip can hand you a copy if you want to read it. Not a bad book. Uh, these other books, you know, readily available at any library. Um, also available for, uh, for audiobook download. That's, that's how I usually listen to things. I have a long commute. I drive. I listen. And every once in a while, I have to stop and talk to myself and disagree with the author. I don't agree with necessarily everything they say, but um, I am very confident that I agree on the um, basics. Oh, and excuse me, one, one other reference I should make is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, right? Um, you know, because I think that these authors don't agree with some very specific points of what we teach here at Remnant of Israel. And they, they don't agree with some specific points of of my personal belief and, and our doctrine. However, we, we agree on matters of what I would call mere Christianity, the fundamental tenets of the faith. Uh, again, last chance for any comments or questions on references before we move on. No? Possible? Absolutely. Uh, have I written it up? Heavens no. Right? Will I? I will attempt to write. Yeah, because um, that's a good question. Let me. So, for those of you who didn't hear the question, Doreen's question was, you know, uh, is there a list? Uh, right now, the list is basically what I've what I've read off to you. My goal for this series is that it is academically sound, so I should cite my references better than I'm doing right now. My goal is. Yes, to have a concise and properly cited list of references to support this, right? And, and also in the future, um, this, you know, what we're trying to do is have uh, material that we can send out to prospective new members in advance so they can prepare and participate better in the discussion as we go, right? So there'd be, there'd be right? Doreen, you're going to love this word. Right? The rest of us are probably not going to, but there will be homework with uh, the new members class. Right? So uh, that's the goal. Yes, ma'am, a question. Okay. Excellent. Good. Right. So, okay, so, right, in, in traditional fashion, right, we're, right we're, we're at a synagogue, right, so I'm going to answer a question with a question, right, um, is, is a hard copy better or is a, a digital copy sent out to people's emails better? Hard copy, as you like. I thank you for that feedback. I would not have done that unless someone asked for it. Okay. A test? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, that's, that's the test. <laughs> right, yeah, if, if, you, uh, if, if you show up, right, at the sound of the trumpet, you meet him in the air, you pass the test. Good job.
Fair enough, right? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, so I referenced uh, Dr. Craig's class, right? First of all, Dr. Craig's class can be had on the Reasonable Faith app. You can download that on your phone. I have it on my phone. I'd encourage you to do it. His class is wonderful. He goes very, very, it, it's detailed and it's modular, right? You can, you can look up, oh, he's got an argument for, he's got a natural theology section of it. He's got a doctrine section of it, blah, 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 right? His, this class that I referenced is, is held at his church, and then you can see the, uh, the recordings of it. And it is approximately a half-hour class, right? Roughly 50 weeks a year for four years. So about 200 half-hour block sessions with, with again, with one of the, uh, the leading philosophers and apologists of our age, right? So the, the app is free. Download it and enjoy it. Did I answer your question? What's that? <laughs> what? Do you get hats? Do you want like a what? Like make theology great again hat or? What? All right. Seeing no more questions, I'm I'm gonna gonna go ahead and move on. And speaking of defining terms, I would like to define the following terms, right? Words that you might hear me use today. First of all, the word axiom, right? An axiom is a statement or proposition that is regarded as accepted or well-established, right? There are certain things that are, these things are self-evident, right? And we don't need to spend time proving these things, right? I'm not going to spend time proving my own existence, Right? That's, you know, if, if your question is, do I exist or not, I will say, and whom shall I say is asking, right? There you go. You exist. Um, uh, the word epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. It's the study of how, it answers the question, how do we know what we know? Right? So if I say to you, you know, the, the, the testimony of a trusted witness has epistemological value, that's a way of saying, you know, if, if someone tells me something and I, I have reason to trust that person, that's a way of knowing. I can know based on what that person said that something is true. Uh, ontology, right, as opposed to epistemology. Ontology is the study of being. It's the study of how do we, how do things exist, right? If I'm going to use the word is or say that someone is a being, right? I'm making an ontological statement. I'm talking about the nature of existence, right? And finally, uh, worldview. Worldview is a set of basic beliefs from which we reason, right? It is, I don't think that it is true. You'll, you'll hear sometimes people will say, the evidence speaks for itself. First of all, that is, that is anthropomorphizing evidence, right? Evidence is not a person. It does not speak for itself, right? When we look at evidence, we oftentimes interpret evidence in light of a worldview, right? We interpret evidence based on how we think this evidence fits into our worldview. And it is rare, it should happen if we're thinking logically, but it is very rare that we look at evidence and say there's no way that this fact 
matches with my worldview, so I need to change my worldview. Right? That, is, that is rare on behalf of human beings. Okay, so I'm also going to, uh, I'm going to read a definition of worldview so that we all have a common frame of reference moving forward. And this definition comes from uh, Greg Kokel's A Story of Reality. He says, every worldview has four elements. They help us understand how the parts of a person's worldview fit together. These four parts are called creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation tells us how things began, where everything came from, including us, the reasons for our origins, and what ultimate reality is like. Fall describes the problem, since we all know that something has gone wrong with the world. Redemption gives us the solution, the way to fix what went wrong, and restoration describes what the world will look like once the repair takes place. Right? And I think this is a fair statement. I think it's fair to say that every human being has a worldview. Right? Everyone, everyone has a worldview. And the vast majority of the time we use that worldview to analyze evidence that we see. And we make that evidence fit within our worldview. Right? If we are going to be logical, when we see facts... Right? We should then take those, if those facts contradict our worldview, then we should modify our worldview. Right? And again, I think that's rare. Uh, so before we move on, any questions on the definitions of these words that I'm going to be using? These are not words we necessarily use all the time. Okay, seeing no, uh, seeing no questions, uh, we'll move on. I want to talk about truth. Right? And first of all, Right, how, do, how do we define truth? Right, defining truth is a difficult thing to do. Right, you, right, because I, I don't want to define a word using the word. And if you look up the definition of truth in the dictionary, you'll see that a lot of times dictionaries, which should know better, right, they'll, they'll tell you one, one online dictionary that I saw. I won't reference it here because it's embarrassing for them. Right? They said, truth is that which is true. Right? Thank you. Right? you know, I suppose that uh, a tree is that which is a tree. Right? It's, you know, glad I bought that dictionary. Right? That was a good use of money. So uh, my question to you, and I'd like your feedback, right? think about it and then answer. How do we define the word truth without using some form of the word? Right? And uh, bar and bat mitzvah students, you don't get to uh, answer this quite yet. I know you're so smart. I know you know the answer. How do we do it? Right? We don't get to say that truth is that which is full of truthy goodness. Right? How do we do it? Right. Rock stars full of truthy goodness. Mm. Mm. I mean, truthy when I say that, there's all sorts of goodness in there. What is truth? What's the definition of it without using the word or form of the word? What God says? What God says? Okay, fair enough. What about for someone who doesn't believe in the existence of God? Okay, something that's right? Okay, that's all right, fair. What else? Indisputable by what standard? Some... Uh, the, the answer was something that is indisputable. By what standard are we going to dispute with it? How I... Nature? How I feel about it? 
evidence based on evidence? Okay, these are, these are good answers. You guys are doing a good job, right? It's actually a fairly hard question, right? I would like to define the word truth as that which is consistent with reality, right? I think, right, we heard the word nature, right? Nature is, nature is real, right? Reality, there are, I think that there are things that are supernatural that are very real. So while nature is part of reality, it's not all of reality, right? Things that are right, I think that's a good answer. Right as opposed, as opposed to incorrect, right? They don't mesh with reality, right? So we're going to use this definition for the word truth, right? That which is consistent with reality. Fair enough? Okay. Now, when, when we think about truth, right, there, there's a proper way to think about truth. There are all sorts of wrong ways to think about truth. Okay? But there is a proper way to think about truth. Right? Some of the things that we need to start with are axioms. Right? We already talked about what an axiom is. Right? It's somewhere we start and I don't, I don't spend time proving my axioms. Okay? So these are some of the axioms. These are some things that are axiomatic to good thought. Right? First of all, that I'm thinking my own thoughts. Right? I exist. I'm thinking my own thoughts. I'm not a brain sitting somewhere in a vat. I'm not in the matrix, right? I'm not being fed thoughts from some other source. I am thinking my own thoughts. I exist, and my, the, the thoughts that are internal to me are, are actually thoughts that I'm having, right? I'm not gonna spend time proving it. It's axiomatic, right? We're also going to accept as axiomatic that my senses are giving me an accurate picture of the real world, right? Again, we're not in the Matrix. Great movie. Love the movie. All right. But it doesn't explain reality, right? We are, I am, right now, right, there are, there's air going out of my body. It's causing my vocal cords to vibrate. That is actually happening, right? That sound is hitting your eardrums. And your ears are translating that into neural signals that you can understand. All of these things are real. They are actually happening. Right? If you don't think that's the case, if you think we're in the matrix, if you think we're in Plato's cave, you need to explain why. Right? The burden of proof is on you to explain why my senses are not an actual true according of what is going on. Agreed? Axiomatic, right? We also accept as axiomatic causality, right? Anything that begins to happen hap has a cause. Something caused that to happen, all right? There's no, right, there, there's no, um, it had a reason that it happened, right? Again, axiomatic. It's something we accept, right? We don't spend time proving it. It seems to be self-evident, and if you're going to argue against it, the burden of proof is on you to explain why it's not true, right? And especially with causality, that's a long road to hoe. Fair enough? So those are the things that we accept, right? And again, right now, no appeal has been made, no appeal has been made to religion, right? This is, this is just an appeal to logic. It's an appeal to good thought. Okay. Another part of good thought that we accept as true, we accept these things, 
as axiomatically true are the three laws of logic. Right? The three laws of logic are the law of identity. Ooh, yeah, our, our bar and bat mitzvah students are jumping up and down wanting to participate. All right, go. What, what are the three laws of logic? A bar mitzvah in our synagogue should be able to answer this question. Just tell me, yeah, just tell me the, the three laws, just, and then we'll, I'll, I'll describe them. No, 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 not, not the big three arguments, the three laws of logic, right? The law of identity, what? Excellent, ladies and gentlemen. A bar mitzvah of this synagogue can tell us what the three laws of logic are. Excellent, thank you, sir. The law of identity. The law of identity tells, this is, are you ready for it? If something is true, then it's true. Wow. Yeah. That's the law of identity. And some of you are rolling your eyes right now. That's okay. Right? Yeah, that's okay. Now, so... Hear me out, right? If something is true, then it's true, right? It's not true for you. It's not true for me. It's not true based on my feelings. It is true objectively, right? The truth is something that is outside of us, and I'm a huge X-Files fan, right? The truth is out there, right? It's outside of us. It's something that we discover. It is not something that we make. Right? If we make something true by thinking that it is true, then make-believe is reality. Right? We don't make something true by thinking it. Truth is objective. It's outside of us, and we discover truth. Okay? Also, if something is true, then it is true. Right? That statement presupposes the existence of truth. Right? presupposes the existence of that which is consistent with reality. Right? It has to. Now, what if someone was to argue against the law of identity being true? What if someone was to say that, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me? Right? We could ask that person, is that true? Right? that true is it always true or is it just true for you right if someone says there is no truth what is that that's a claim to knowing an objective truth that there is no truth it's a self-defeating statement right I if I say there is no truth one of two things must be true right that statement is true which contradicts itself there is no truth but there's a truth right there they can't both be true Right? Or the statement is not true, so we don't care about the statement. Right? If I say this building is burning down, and you look around and you say, hey, the building's not burning down. Statement's not true. We don't care about the statement. Right? So, if someone says, there is no truth. Oh, it sounds like a deep philosophical concept, right? It's a dumb, shallow philosophical concept that needs to be answered. Just ask him, oh, is that true? Hopefully he'll see the self-defeating nature of what he's saying. All right, so the law of identity. If a statement is, if, if something is true, then it's true, right? 
deeper and more important than it sounds, right? And again, right, it's good that we have young people in our synagogue who are capable of thinking well, right? That is, that is a capability that a lot of young people lack, right? And that is a capability that it is our job to teach our young people, right? They will not learn it from society. They will not learn it from, right, from, uh, certainly from the public school system, right? They might not learn it from a, even a decent private school, right? We have to teach them if we want them to think properly, right? And yes, there is a proper way to think, and there are many improper ways to think. Okay, the next law of logic, right, that we accept as axiomatic, the law of non-contradiction. The non-contradiction says that a statement, a truth statement, we'll call it X, X cannot be true and false in the same way at the same time. Right? Second law of logic. Right? The law of non-contradiction. So uh, what is this? You know, something cannot be true and false at the same time. Either, either I'm here or I'm not here. Right? But, but I can't be both. Right? I, I, I cannot be in a, in a logical truth state that contradicts itself. That doesn't make, that's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. Right? Now, you could say, right, this is probably true of Philip right now. I would just guess. Right? Philip is here. He's physically here. But he's not here mentally. Right? <laughs> Where is he mentally? Right? Mentally, he's saying, oh, I would love to be at home right now taking a nice Shabbat nap. Right? So... It's probably true of Philip that he is physically here, but he's not mentally here, right? That's okay. That's not a violation of the second law, right? right? Because something cannot be true and false at the same time in the same way, okay? Those things, you know, one thing is true and one thing is false, but they're, in, they're true in different ways, right? So the, um, right, the law of non-contradiction is a lot of fun. Um, Avicenna, whose uh, who's, uh, Arabic name was uh, Ibn, Ibn Sina, he's basically the, uh, think of him as the St. Thomas Aquinas of al-Islam, right? He was the one who said that uh, if someone denies the law of non-contradiction, that person should be burned and whipped until that person agrees that being burned is not the same thing as not being burned, and being whipped is not the same thing as not being whipped. Right? So uh, if someone ever says he's going to get medieval on your, well, get medieval on you, right? These, these medieval philosophers take this, the second law of logic very seriously. Right? So just, just be careful with that. Right, right. So, right. So, contradiction, contradiction does does not always mean that the opposite can exist, right? Yes. So, yeah, we need to be we need to be careful with what we're thinking logically, right? Good point. Thank you. Uh, the the third the third law of logic is the law of the excluded middle, right? And the law of the excluded middle, right? This one is probably not very popular today with the woke crowd, right? Because this law is binary, right? There is no non-binary nature of truth. This is a binary law. And basically, it just states, the law of the excluded middle just says that a truth statement is either true 
or it is false. Yes or no, zero or one. There's nothing else, right? Yeah, there's no 0.5. There's no, well, that statement is 75% true. No, that doesn't exist. It's either true or it's false, right? Now, notice that I can make a number of statements, right? I mean, my statements, you know, can be, you know, Joe George is speaking right now, and he's the most handsome man in the room, and he's the richest man in the room, right? That combined, I, I was, I'm probably batting about 33, right? So I am speaking, yes. Am I the most handsome man in the room? Possibly not, right? I'm definitely not the richest man in the room. So, but each one of those statements has a truth value. It's either true or it's false. There's no halfway. So when we add statements together, each truth statement, each separable truth statement is either true or it's false. There's nothing else. Right? And again, right, these are, these are the three laws of logic. We accept them as axiomatic because we can look at it using our minds. We can think about it and understand that it's true. What is there other than true or false? There's nothing. That's what the third law of logic is. Any, any questions or commentary on the three laws of logic before we move on? Okay, I will make a quick commentary, right, that I'm very proud of our bar and bat mitzvah students who, as you see, as, as you are all witnesses of, are uh, trained in this material and have a good understanding of truth. So, um, moving on, I want to talk about, uh, uh, now we're talking about epistemology, right? That's a big word, but we already defined it. So, for those of you who were paying attention, what is it? You better have been paying attention. For those of you who were paying attention, what is epistemology? What's that? Okay, the study of knowledge, right? How do we know what we know? Right? There are a number of ways that we can know things. All right? And these are, these are things that we need to think about. These are, these are things that are very difficult to prove absent a logical thought process. Right? So there are a number of ways we can know things. One way is through intuition. Right? We can know things through intuition. Right? And one of the things that we know through intuition are moral things. Right? Morality, right? Morality is something that comes to man. Right? Morality is not, it's not made of matter. Right? It's not time, space, matter, or energy. Right? It's certainly not something we study with science. Right? So, right? so, one, of the, so one of the ways that we can know things is through intuition. Now, be careful here, right? Knowing I can know something without necessarily being able to show it to others. Knowing is not necessarily the same thing as showing, okay? So my intuition is usually not a good way to show someone else, right? Another way of saying that is if my intuition differs from someone else's, right, I'm going to have to appeal to something outside of intuition to convince that person that he's wrong and I'm right. Do we agree? Right? If, if, if my intuition, my intuition might not be perfect, it probably isn't, right? And certainly, if my intuition disagrees with someone else's, right, they can't both be right, 
Can they? Do we need to get Avicenna to come here and burn and whip people? Right? They can't both be right. So, intuition is one, one manner of epistemology, one way we can know things. Right? There's also testimony. Right? Testimony is a legitimate manner of knowing things. Right? If someone, if someone comes in the door, right? Zach comes in the door, and Zach says, hey, uh, a UFO just landed out in the parking lot, and there's little green men coming out of it. Right? Well, right? If, if we know Zach, right? And if we trust what Zach is saying, if he's a trustworthy witness, then that testimony is a way of knowing things. Right? You know, a a little bit more reasonable example that doesn't stretch credulity quite as much, right? What if Zach said that, you know, the, the, the Hellenistic world was, create, was uh, inaugurated by the conquests of Alexander, Alexander II of Macedonia, commonly known as Alexander the Great, and this happened uh, between the years 335 and 331 B.C., Right? Do, do we agree with that? Is, that? is that a true statement? Can we know that? We've heard of Alexander the Great? Yes? He, he was a real person? Right. How, do, how do we know? What's that? Right, through someone's testimony. In this case, written testimony, right? We know through history, but this is an acceptable way of knowing things, right? We can know that that's true. Right? We can do our, our critical historical analysis. We can say, oh, you know, we've got this author who said that. We've got that author who said that. These, these things seem to be right. We also have other authors who talk about the Greek language being everywhere in, in the ancient world. Right? We've got people who talk about Greek culture being everywhere in the ancient world. This seems to be consistent with a military victory that was followed by the cultural expansion of the Greek thought process throughout this region, right? That's a way of knowing. That's correct, right? Testimony includes the things that are written in this book, right? Testimony also includes, right? Testimony also includes the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. Blessed be he, right? We can, we, we have, we have a method of knowing, right? And this is a fair method of knowing, right? We've already agreed that testimony is legitimate, right? And so Zach is 100% correct saying that there is a testimony in the scriptures, right? Even if you don't think, if you don't think that God exists, if you don't think there, there is any God, right? You can, you know, there are, there are atheist archaeologists who pick up this book, study the things that it says, and go find those things, they, they dig through the dirt and they find them, right? There are Muslim archaeologists who think that this book has been corrupted, right? That it was not passed down faithfully. But they dig through this book and they say, well, ah, this part was probably correct because I went out and found the stupid thing, right? Okay, so yes, this book, even if you don't think that the testimony is of a supernatural nature, right? This book has testimony in it, right? And, and we can look at this testimony even if you don't think it's the result of God's choice in here.
right? So yes, Zach is 100% correct. The scriptures, what we call the scriptures, are a form of testimony, right? Also, right, the inward witness of the Spirit, that's a form of testimony, right? The Spirit is testifying to us, right? There are, you know, I am probably in this synagogue, I am probably one of the bottom five people as far as sensitivity to the Spirit. That's just kind of my nature, right? That doesn't mean that the, that the Spirit is incapable. It certainly doesn't mean the Spirit's incapable of talking to me. It doesn't mean that I'm incapable of hearing the words of the Spirit, right? It means that that's not a gift that's been given to me in, certainly in abundance, right? That does not deny the testimony of the Spirit. That doesn't mean that the testimony of the Spirit isn't real and isn't real for each one of us individually, right? What's the problem with the epistemological nature of the testimony of the Spirit? Question for everyone for discussion. What's the problem with that? And remember, I'm, I'm going to give you a hint. Remember, knowing is not the same thing as showing. Knowing something for yourself is not the same thing as showing others the truth of it. With that in mind, what's the problem with the epistemic? I'm not saying it's not a good manner of knowing, but what's the problem with the epistemological nature of the inward testimony of the Spirit? Exactly correct. Say it louder, please. Right, exactly correct, right? It is very difficult for me to have an inward experience, an inward experience of the testimony of the Spirit, right? A legitimate epistemological, right? I can know, right? I can know that the Spirit is a trustworthy witness, right? He can talk to me. He does talk to me. He talks to disciples in general, not just me specifically, Right? I can know that, and that is a good way of knowing, but it's a difficult way of convincing other people because it's inward. It, it really can't be shared with other people. What's another problem with it? Right? Okay, sure. Um, true, I'm trying to develop the idea more, Charlie. Let me, let me see if I can. So... What, what I'm calling, let me, uh, what I'm calling the inward witness of the Spirit, right? What I'm calling the inward witness of the Spirit is what our, right, what our Mormon friends would call a burning in the bosom, what our Muslim friends would call a shahada. What's, what's the problem with that? Okay, it's, it's a feeling, right? We, one way of saying it is I, I feel the Spirit talking to me, right? Okay, and, and that's true, right? Go back, to, uh, go back to the second law of logic. Go back to the law of non-contradiction, right? If the Spirit is telling me that, for instance, there's only one God, and the Spirit's telling my Mormon friends, right? I grew up in southeastern Idaho. Brothers and sisters, I know Mormonism. Right? I, I probably know it better than Mormons. Maybe. 
right? If the Spirit is telling a Mormon that there's more than one God, that, that there's effectively infinite numbers of gods, infinite numbers of beings that are gods, can they both be right? Guys, I will start burning and whipping you if you don't answer. Can, no, they cannot both be right, right? Either God is one, right, or God is many. But those two things cannot be true at the same time, right? So, right, when we appeal to the, the inward witness of the Spirit, right, we need to be prepared to say that, we, we need to be prepared for, to answer counterfeit claims, right, basically. We need to be prepared to say, you know, listen, brother, I understand that you believe there, there's no God but God and Muhammad is his messenger, right, but that's not true and let me show you why, okay, right? Again, it does, the existence of counterfeit claims doesn't mean that there's no real inward witness of the Spirit. That's illogical, right? One doesn't follow from the other. Okay, but we need to be prepared, again, knowing is different than showing, right? We need to be prepared to say, you know, listen, I understand that, you know, that you believe that there are worlds and gods without end, right? But let me show you why that's false, right? Let me show you why that worldview is incorrect, right? Because for, right, because remember, right, we already said that truth, how do, how do we define truth? Truth is consistent with reality, right? So if the inward witness of the Spirit, right, or, you know, again, as our, as our Mormon friends, I'm not going to call them brethren because that's a heresy, but as our Mormon friends would, would talk about a burning in the bosom, if your burning in the bosom is telling you something that is not consistent with reality, it's not correct, and therefore it's not a good way of knowing, right? That's how we distinguish these counterfeit claims, Right? We distinguish them from that which is true. But again, key point, the existence of counterfeit claims does not negate the real thing. All right? if, if someone says, hey, North Korea is currently you know, counterfeiting American dollars, that doesn't mean that American dollars don't exist. Right? One, right those, those two things are logically, right? they're, they're non sequitur. Okay? So yes, testimony, right, can include human testimony. It can include written testimony that was written by humans. It can include testimony that was written by humans that was divinely inspired. And testimony can include, can include the inward witness or the inward testimony, if you prefer, of the Spirit. Those are all testimony and those, those are all legitimate ways of knowing things, right? Those are epistemologically sound methods. Good? Any questions on the epistemology of testimony? Okay, right? Another way we can know things is by induction, right? Induction includes things like the scientific method, right? Notice that we first have to say we can know things by induction, and then we can say we can use the scientific method. All right, to, right, science in and of itself 
right, does not tell us that science is trustworthy. Right? We have to use philosophy to get there. We have to use first principles. Right? And if you like science, right, just, just a little, little sidetrack, right, who in here likes science? I like the idea that, you know, that, that things, you know, that we can know things, that we can test things, that we can prove things, science, prove isn't the right word, that we can know things scientifically, we can know through induction. You like that? All right. If you like that, all right, think, among other people, the Roman church and Christianity, right, and the the Roman and the Christian philosophers who taught that the Almighty, blessed be He, created the world as an ordered whole and it could be understood by certain laws. Okay? The idea that we can know these things through induction is not a scientific idea. Science doesn't tell you that you can trust science. Right? Philosophy tells you that you can trust science and then you have to do your science. Okay, so induction has epistemological value. It is a good method of knowing that. But you cannot know it through science. You have to know it through, uh, through um, philosophy, through metaphysics. It's not a physical principle, it's a metaphysical principle. Good? Okay, now I'm... I'm going to tell you something that is not a good way of knowing, right? I'm going to, another word that I should have discussed in uh, my word group was, is the word faith, right? When, I'm talk, when, I, when I talk about faith, right, I will be using faith in the same way, uh, I, I'll be talking about faith as the, the series of beliefs that we deduce from the scriptures and from, and from other sources, primarily from the scriptures though, that lead to the Christian experience, right? I'm not talking about the trust inside of a person that trusts in the truth of these things. This is why trust, or I'm gonna, first of all, one of the reasons is that faith, especially today, is too often paired with the word blind or leap of, right? And that's not, that is not consistent with our religion, right? That is not consistent with our worldview, right? We are talking about something that we can prove by fact, right? And it's disprovable by fact. Okay, we'll talk more about this later, but there are specific facts that if those facts are not true, they totally disprove our worldview. And we should go join my friend Jeremy being Satanists or whatever you prefer, right? But if those facts are not true, then we're wasting our time here, right? More on that later, right? I, so the word faith is a good word when used in a very specific context, right? But the word trust is the word I'm going to use when we're talking about looking at a set of facts and then saying, because these facts are true, I trust that the next thing is going to happen. Let me give you an example. I'm an airborne soldier, right? It means I jump out of planes, you know, supposedly perfectly good Air Force planes, right? 
before they land and I deliver death and destruction on the enemies of my nation, right? It's a lot of fun. It's, it's the one thing, right? The government is able to make everything else in the army terrible, but you, you, can, you can't make jumping out of planes terrible. It just doesn't work, right? Anyways, when I jump out of that plane, I do not know that my chute's going to open. I trust that my chute is going to open, right? Trusting is not a way to know something. Trusting does not have epistemological value. All right? And trusting is not a, it, it's not a way to know. It, it's, it's in a different category. Okay? I can trust that my chute is going to open. All right? And if that main don't open wide, then I've got a reserve by, by my side. Right? And if that one should fail me too, then look out below, because I'm coming through. Right? The point is, right, I don't know things. I don't, have, I don't have knowledge that that chute's going to open. I have trust that that chute is going to open. Right? That's not a way of knowing something. Right? You, you will potentially hear this from a group of atheists called street epistemologists. Right? And they will define the word faith as pretending to know something that you don't really know. Right? And if we are using faith as a manner of knowing something, they're actually right. right? But faith, trust, as I'm using the word, trust is not a manner of knowing, it's a manner of trusting. They're different things. Okay, any questions on epistemology before we move on? I'm going to try to go quickly because I think I'm... Uh, burning people's time more than I expected to. It might become, it might become a four-year uh, four class. No questions on epistemology? All right, how we know what we know? All right, quickly. Uh, the Bible, right? We talk about knowing things from the Bible. Zach mentioned that the scriptures are a form of testimony. Yes, they are. A, a key question is from whom does this testimony come, right? Is this a book by men about God, or is this a book from God to men through men? All right, those are different things, All right? We think that this is a book from God to men, to all mankind, through men, All right? That's what we think, All right? This is why we think that. We have good reasons to think that. Right? First of all, there are, are fulfilled prophecies in this book. Right? There are things where, right, before these things happen, someone said, yeah, this is going to happen in such and such matter of time. As a matter of fact, some of these prophecies seem to, right, by our current historical understanding, seem to be accurate to the day over a period of more than 400 years. Okay, that, that's simply, that's, that's mathematically impossible unless this is divinely inspired, right? Fulfilled prophecy is a good way to know that this book is not just, just a book, right? There, there are many books, right? There are many stories from the ancient Near East. We have good historical attestation of those things, right? But this book seems to be more than that, and one of the reasons is fulfilled prophecy, right? There are numerous examples, right? I'm not going to go into a lot of depth, right? The but a few quick examples. 
would be the prophecies regarding the destruction of Tyre, right? They came true exactly as the prophecy said they would come true, right? You know, Tyre was a city that was built partly on the mainland and partly on an island, right? And if you read the specific prophecy the way it's supposed to happen, Tyre was first of all destroyed, the, the mainland part was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, right? But he couldn't, he, he didn't have the naval capability to get out to the island. And then the island was destroyed by Alexander the Great. He didn't have the naval capability to get out there either. He just built himself a bridge all the way out, right? Um, and other examples of, of uh, fulfilled prophecy would be the fulfilled prophecies regarding Jesus of Nazareth, right? Prophecies written hundreds of years before his advent, right, that were, that were true to, to very specific details, right? If you think that these are coincidences, you need to go take a statistics course, right? So fulfilled prophecies are one of the ways, right, and, and our reasoning is this, right? If something's going to be prophesied, and that thing is difficult to prophesy, right? I mean, if I say, hey, I, I give you a prophecy that people tomorrow are going to be breathing oxygen, right? Well, there, there's not a lot of value in that, right? But if I give you a prophecy that 400 years from this day, such and such is going to happen, and it turns out that it happens, that's pretty interesting information that something superhuman occurred here, right? We also know that this book is the word of God from correct history, right? Again, it is consistent with reality. It's consistent with other historical testimonies that we have, right? We find it to be correct history both because it agrees with other historical records, right, and because it agrees with the archaeological record, right? Again, we don't use other histories to judge this book. We use that as one data point to say, yes, this seems to be consistent, right? For instance, if I told you, again, going back to our Mormon friends, right? If I told you there was a Jewish civilization, a flourishing Jewish civilization that built great cities and had steel and pre-Columbian swine, pre-Columbian horses and blah, 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 in this country... Right? There is no evidence that that is actually consistent with reality. Right? There is great evidence that the things written in this book are consistent with reality. Right? There's the survival of this book. Right? People, have tried to, people have tried to change or destroy the text of this book and they failed. Right? Not only that, but this book seems to have been preserved with marked accuracy. Right? This is inconsistent with the laws of physics. Right? Things break down. Right? Play the telephone game and see how accurate you remain over, over just a series of a few people. Right? But this book has been preserved down to, down to the grammatical errors that were made by scribes literally thousands of years ago. Right? That is, again, right? there is... There is entropy that creeps into, in addition to physical systems, entropy enters information systems, right? And that entropy has to be undone by real informational work, right? So again, the, the preservation and the survival of this book is one of the ways that we, that we can 
think that this book is supernatural. It has been preserved by superhuman means. Right? There is also, right, as we've mentioned, there is the, the Spirit's testimony of this book. Right? If you read this book, right, my, if, if you haven't read this book, I would encourage you to do so. Right? When you read it, see what happens. See if you have the inward testimony of the Spirit telling you the truth of this book. Right? Again, I agree there are other worldviews that make the same claim about their books. Okay? But those other books, right, we can judge those counterfeit claims, and they are counterfeit. We can judge those claims by how well those books comport with reality. And if they do not comport with either historical reality or moral reality, we can understand that those claims, right, to an inward testimony of the Spirit are counterfeit claims. Okay. Before I move on, any questions on reasons that we can trust this book as something more than a human book written by humans only about God? All right, that was, that was very brief, and you'll pardon the brevity, given the, the nature of all the stuff that we want to talk about. Okay, so moving on, all right, finally I want to talk about God. How do we know that God exists, right? We have a number of reasons that we can know that God exists. First of all, we can know that God exists because he tells us that he exists, right? That sounds very simple, right? But again, an important part of any worldview experience is our intuition, right? And in our case, in the case of the disciple of the Messiah, right, we can know that God exists by the inward testimony of the Spirit, in, right? Again, we've already talked about testimony. Testimony is a legitimate way of knowing. Right? We hear from a person who is trustworthy. In the case of the person, capital P, of the Spirit, right? we can know that the Spirit's testimony to us is a legitimate way of knowing. Right? We also have other ways we can know. Right? If, if you don't have the inward testimony of the Spirit, guess what? You're not out of luck. Right? There are all sorts of ways just by looking at reality, just by looking at reality and using the inductive process that we can understand that God exists, right? Some of these ways are by understanding the world and the reality that he made, right? We're going to go briefly through some of them, right? One of these ways, right, these are, these are called arguments from natural theology, right? And these are arguments that the, these arguments from natural theology don't necessarily point to the truth of the Judeo-Christian God. Right? We'll get there later. Be patient. Right? But they do point to the existence of a theistic God, a personal God who, is, who, who seems to be the, the God that we expect to see given the truth of the inward testimony of the Spirit. Right? So... Here they are. One of the, we call these the big three when we're going through our, our BB class, bar and bat mitzvah class, right? And the big three, the first one of the big three is, I, we don't really put them in order, right? But uh, one of the big three is the teleological argument. The teleological argument is the argument from design, right? We see things, they seem to be designed. 
They seem to be designed in a certain way, right? And they, they seem to be designed, the, the world seems to be designed for human flourishing, right? This is true in a number of different ways, right? This is true in, in the fact that the universe, the universe that we inhabit seems to be fine-tuned, right? When we talk about the fine-tuning of the universe, right, this is, this is something that any scholar, uh, any, any physicist, Christian, atheist, Islamic, whatever, will agree with. The universe is fine-tuned, right? There are a number of physical constants, right? The gravitational constant of the universe, right? The cosmological constant of the universe. That's, that's right, we know that space is expanding, right? We can see light from distant galaxies is red-shifted, right? That, the, the nature of those things, right? The precise relationship of the... Uh, the strong nuclear force to the weak nuclear force. These things are not the way they are because they have to be. They don't have to be, right? They don't have to be that way, and yet they are in a very incredibly, notably precise area that permits, that permits life, right? That permits chemistry, right? If the gravitational constant of the universe was weaker by a tiny, tiny amount, right? And I can get you the numbers if you'd like to, but if that was the case, the universe would just fly apart. No galaxies, no stars, no nothing. No planets like what we have. If the gravitational constant of the universe was stronger, everything crashes together in one big black hole, and that's your universe, right? So you can argue that, hey, just a lucky coincidence, right? But it's not a lucky coincidence. Right? If, if that's a lucky coincidence, your retirement plan needs to be buying lottery tickets, right? Because it's, it is mathematically impossible that that's a lucky coincidence, right? Instead, right, the fine-tuning of the universe indicates to us that there is a, a design and therefore a designer in the universe, right? We would argue that that designer is God. Okay, the teleological argument for the existence of God, right? There is also what we call the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God, right? This is the, the second of our so-called big three. Kalam, Arabic word, a Kalam, right? It was popularized by a, uh, um, a medieval scholar, uh, a Muslim, who was concerned that uh, his, his fellow Muslims were not, were not taking their theology seriously enough when they were listening to the Greeks, right? And the, the argument goes this way, right? That everything that begins to exist has a cause, right? That's premise one. Premise two is the universe began to exist, right? The conclusion is, therefore, the universe had a cause, Right? So everything that begins to exist has a cause. Right? If you disagree with this, then you'll need to tell me something that begins to exist that doesn't have a cause, and you can't. Right? If you think about it, everything that begins to exist does indeed have a cause. Right? The universe, right? premise two, the universe began to exist. Right? This is right, the, uh, the atheists used to want to say that the universe was eternal. 
right? We now know that it is not eternal. It cannot be eternal, right? It cannot be eternal for a number of reasons. The best reason is the second law of thermodynamics, right, that says we're, we in this universe are running out of usable energy, energy available to do useful work, right? Yet here we are, every one of us in our bodies are doing useful work, right? There's lights that are shooting these photons out doing useful work, and thank God, there's an air conditioner with a compressor doing useful work, pumping the heat outside, right? All sorts of useful work is going on around us, so we haven't been around forever, or all the useful work would already be already gone, right? We already know from metaphysics, right, from philosophy, from logic, that the beginning had to happen a finite number of events ago. You can't go back infinitely far, right? If I tell you to start counting to infinity, you will never be done. If I tell you to count backwards from infinity, there's nowhere to even start, right? What, what happens, what, I, I, so I start counting at negative infinity, what's the next number, all right? It's illogical. So, right, the universe had a beginning. What caused it? Right? The only reasonable answer to what caused the universe, right? Remember, the universe consists of time, space, matter, and energy, right, and the laws that govern them. Those things didn't create themselves, Right? There's no such thing as something that causes itself. That's illogical. Right? So what caused those things? Well, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, the cause of those things is what we call God. Okay? That's the Kalam cosmological argument. And finally, right, we can know, right, without an appeal to this book, without an appeal to anything that we've been taught by our elders in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we can know that God exists based on the argument from morality, right? The argument from morality states that if moral duties and values exist, then God must exist, right? And we know that moral duties and values do exist. There is a right, there is a wrong. These things are objectively morally true. Therefore, God has to exist, right? This is true because morality is not physical. Morality is not made of stuff, right? You know, as much goodness as is indeed in energy drinks, right? I cannot fill up this bottle with goodness, right? That, that's not a thing, right? Morality is, morality is real, but it is not physical, right? If it exists, right, if objective morality exists, if something is really right or really wrong, then God must exist. There, there must be... There must be a being, a personal being, right? Because I don't, I don't owe any moral responsibility to this bench. This bench is not a person. I owe moral responsibility to people, to persons, right? So if something is really wrong or something is really right, that moral value or that moral duty emanates from the standard of a person, right? In this case, person... Right? Three persons, capital P, one being, whose nature defines reality. Right? So we can know, right? we can induce, we can reason from induction that God exists, right? because it seems that there is a designer, right? there had to be a first cause, right? and there has to be someone who determines morality. And there are many other arguments from natural theology that we could discuss. We're not going to discuss them in this venue. Now, 
Any questions on the arguments from natural theology before we move on? Almost done. Okay, seeing no comments, or questions, discussion, anything, comments. I'm tired, I'm bored, that's a comment. It's okay, you won't hurt my feelings. What's that? Oh, okay, all right, Doreen is asking, uh, we, we've heard about the ontological argument. That's an argument from natural theology for the existence of God. Um, I'm not going to cover that one right now. That one's, that one's hard. These ones have been easy, right? Uh, I, I think Paul, Paul's argument, I think, would more... I, I think your reference is to um, Romans, where he says... Um, uh, where he says mankind is without excuse because the, the, the um, I think I'm quoting this right, the power in the divine nature of the Godhead is, is readily um, observable by man, right? Therefore, mankind is without excuse. Okay. Um, I, would, I would argue that Paul's argument there is probably based on the Kalam, right? Um, and probably based on the teleological argument, Right? And I think he also mentions his goodness, so that would be a, a, an argument based on the moral argument. Um, whether the, the ontological argument is a weird one. The ontological argument depends on God being a necessary being. Right? And Paul might have been referencing that. I don't want to dive right now into, uh, into the ontological argument, if that's okay with you. It's, it's a good one, but it's it would take as long as I, it would take a good 20 minutes for us to hash that out. And like I said, I know some people are bored. I know some people are tired. That's okay. Right. Um, okay, but great question. Thank you, Doreen. Doreen's leaning forward on this. Good job. Right. There's, so two things that we didn't cover the ontological argument. It's a good one. I like it. Um, and, and philosophically, it's actually very strong. You know, no philosopher disagrees with all the points after the first point of the, the ontological argument. We also did not cover, right, uh, we didn't cover Leibniz's cosmological argument, which is the argument from contingency, right? The universe is a contingent thing. It doesn't have to be the way it is. Why is that? Right? It's an interesting argument. Um, if you want to know more about that one, Dr. Craig in his book On Guard covers it right, very well, and it's a, it's a good argument. We didn't include it in our big three. Um, and there, there are various other arguments from natural theology, right? Arguments from natural theology basically mean that the smart money is on the existence of God, right? Now, we haven't yet shown good reasons to think the smart money is on the Judeo-Christian God. This could be Allah, the God of Islam, right? But it, it, whoever he is, he definitely seems to be, from these arguments we've covered today, he seems to be personal because only persons make free moral choices, like the choice to create the universe, right? He seems to be very powerful. He seems to be very, very smart to create this precisely balanced universe, right? And he is definitely not made of time, space, matter, or energy, right? Because those things had a beginning. They didn't cause themselves. He is the cause of those things. So, with that being said, any other discussion of our arguments from natural theology before we move on? 
Can we? Yes. Will we right now? No. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied eventually. <clears throat> okay, so the last one we talked about was the moral argument. I think the moral argument for the existence of God is the strongest one, and I think it because, right, we all know that some things are morally wrong. If anything is really morally wrong, then God must exist, right? So I think that's, if, if I'm going to argue for the existence of God, if I'm going to give an elevator speech, this is why you should think that God exists, I would go straight to the moral argument, right? Here's the thing about the moral argument. In addition to being a strong argument for the existence of God, it also gives us bad news, right? Because our moral sense, that moral intuition that we can trust, that's a way of knowing, it's epistemologically valuable, tells us that we are morally broken, right? Um, as as uh, Greg Kokel says in his book, we're not machines that need fixed. We're rebels that need a pardon, right? Or that need justice, right? So one of the things that we need to discuss, right, as we go forward, as we talk about truth that is consistent with reality, right, is we need to talk about the moral failings of mankind. And so in the way that this discussion has been a discussion of an, an introduction and God, the next thing we'll talk about is... So, um, just as a recapitulation, we talked about truth. Truth is that which is consistent with the, uh, with, with the nature of reality, that which is consistent with reality. Right? We talked about the Bible. We briefly covered, very briefly, why we can know that the Bible is supernatural. It's a book by God to man, written by men, but inspired by God. Right? And we talked about ways that we can know that God exists, ways that we can know, right? not ways that we can feel, right? but ways that we can know, epistemologically sound ways that we can know God exists. Right? Um, I'd also like to... Um, bring your attention to something. Let me, let me phrase it in the form of a question. What was weird, what was weird about, this, uh, about this sermon? What was different? Say it again. I didn't use the Bible. Right? Not once in this sermon did we open this book. Not once in this sermon did you hear the phrase, Thus saith the Lord. Right? Not once. Right? The, and that's okay. Right? There's, there's going, right, we're going to open this book. Right? We're going to spend time in this book as part of this class. Right? But we don't need to start there. Right? It's valuable. It is a good place to start. It is a valid testimony. And we can do that. But one of the purposes of this class is to show that this class is consistent with reality without an appeal to, to the scriptures, right? We will later appeal to the scriptures. We need them. But to start, right, we're trying to present evidence, evidence that is consistent with reality, first of all, to convince you that this book is, is valid, is sound, right, before we dive into it. Right? So again, that, that's, that's nothing that, that says, that, that diminishes the value of the scriptures, 
but it is something that, um, in a sense, elevates the value of reality, right? I think that, I, I think, and I want to convince you that a reasonable person can come to the conclusion of the truth, right? We can confirm, we as disciples can confirm the inward witness of the Spirit, right? Without having to say, well, you know, the, the Spirit told me. No, we can look at reality and say, the things the Spirit is telling me are consistent with reality. Any final uh, comments or discussion before we close? No. No. <laughs> hearing, hearing an emphatic no, that uh, there are no comments or discussion. Uh, Gigi, didn't you hear the no? <laughs> Gigi, what, what, what's your comment? <laughs> oh man. Well played. Well played. Right, right. In a sense, right, I was, so there's, there's this truth, there's this truth that exists, right? S -s all of the important truths that humankind needs for the salvation of mankind are included in this book, right? There are truths outside of this book, and thus far, you're exactly right, my discussion has been an appeal to those truths that, um, that are not necessarily in this book, but this book does reference them. Right? When we say that the heavens declare the glory of God, right, that's exactly what we're saying. Good. Right. Okay, so. Now I'm going to comment really quick on something that Gigi said, right? I want your feedback on, you know, Gigi said, the things that you said are things that people reference when they start a conversation with me, right? I want this new members class, Principia Theologia, right? I want Principia Theologia to be a class that is, is effective not only in edifying the body of believers, which I want it to be, but also in reaching other people, right? So if, if you have had an experience, hey, someone wanted to talk to me about blah, 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 right? I want to know what blah, blah, blah is so that it can, be, it can be part of what we're dealing with, right? I want this to be useful material. Yes, ma'am. Loud for me, please. Yes. Yes, these are, these are being recorded. They'll be on the website. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, good. Okay, good. And if you want to pass their feedback to me, that's fine too. Sure. Okay. Seeing no more, uh, seeing no more discussion, um, why don't you uh, join me in prayer? You know what? Since Gigi mentioned it, 
Right, you can never go wrong with uh, Psalm 19. So let's... Uh, I'm not going to close by blessing you, but we're going to close by uh, blessing the Almighty. Blessed be He. How does that sound? <clears throat> Please join me. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. He rejoices like a strong man to run his race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, and then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, thank you.